Big Book Awakening in the West End Club, Saturday morning women's Big Book study. Thanks for coming today. On this day, <clears throat> the goal of this meeting is to increase our individual knowledge of the book Alcoholics Anonymous by listening to two members who deal with one chapter in depth. I'm Barb. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Julie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Julie. So today we're talking about Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. Um, my favorite part, I think, of this chapter is the first couple of paragraphs. When we used to read this at one of my meetings, um, Joe and Charlie talked about how you, you uh, don't start a math course in Chapter 5 with equations and that kind of stuff <laughs> that you started in chapter one with um, um, simple addition and then you can move on. So the readings we used to do at this meeting um, were still chapter three, uh, this part of chapter three, and this definitely is still step one. Most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Um, <clears throat> What my sponsor did with me fairly early on, after I'd been through a few of the steps and thought that things should be getting better, she told me that um, I need to reread this paragraph and substitute think for drink. So let me do that one time here. Uh, no person likes to think she is bodily and mentally different from her fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our thinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could think like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, she will control and enjoy her thinking is the great obsession of every abnormal thinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And for me, what Chapter 3 does is um, it gives me examples of not just having a drinking problem, but of having a thinking problem. Um, if my problem were just drinking, I could just stop drinking. I mean, if I have an allergy to seafood, I stop eating seafood. It's not a big deal. Maybe I'll relapse once in a while and then get really sick and I won't do it again. But I'm not going to be thinking about drinking or thinking about seafood five times a day, every day. Um, so... And more about alcoholism, there's some great stories. Um, so there's, there's no such thing, <clears throat> uh, physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree, there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Um, I have one sponsor who was working on a, a reduced alcohol intake kind of method and she did that <laughs> you know I mean, she did that for a year this is a program I mean she paid money to be in this program sorry she's not here to talk to you about it um, um, I'm, I'm working with her now and of course you know um, she, she's on the wagon for sure but um, 
making making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic, I think, does not happen. I mean, I, I um, and I didn't I didn't want to say goodbye to twelve year old Jamesons forever, but um, you know, having having been with the program for eight new years now, it's not so hard. Um, it, it's a lot better on the side of the the drink. Um, so yeah, here if anyone who is showing inability to control their drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentlewoman, our hats are off. Um, but it doesn't happen. I love all these methods we've tried. Um, I tried. I tried a bunch of these. I tried um, drinking scotch only because I didn't like scotch that much. You know, I like Irish whiskey. And, and, and I tried drinking Guinness only for a while. But I get like Dr. Bob. We were reading about him last week. I got so fat. Um, and I love it. Switching from scotch to brandy. Drinking only natural wines. <laughs> Um, it was a rock. I could only drink wine when I was abroad. I could not drink American wine because of the sulfide. So when I was traveling, I just never put down the wine bottle. And at home, I never lifted it. Um, and I, I loved drinking. When I was drinking, I loved drinking. I thought it was the best thing to be doing. I didn't like waking up the next day, but I loved drinking while I was doing it. Um, and, and not in moderation. Never in moderation. Uh, I, I think that's alcohol abuse when people can have just one drink and walk away. Um, <laughs> um, now, maybe there was a chance that we could have walked away from drinking early. Um, page 32, I doubt it. Um, Man of 30 was doing spree drinking, all right? Um, and, and this guy was able to stop completely on his own. Um, and and uh, so, he, so he made up his mind to be successful. Now he only he only he only stayed he stayed states over for 25 years, and and I look at this he retired at the age of 55 most of us retire at 65 this guy couldn't wait to get hit you know <laughs> and, then, and then you know in a few years skids gone he's it's it's all gone it's over and um, so we can't we we can't hold off for 25 years and think that we can pick it up later. The disease is progressive. There is no question. If I start drinking now after eight years without a drink, I'm not going to be where I was eight years ago. I'm going to be where I would be if I had continued drinking for this eight years. It would not be pretty. Um, so, yes, staying sober for a little while doesn't work. Um, uh, young folks, and, and it's good to see young folks here. I mean, it's nice that, you know, we're not a bunch of old men smoking cigarettes and drinking. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, that you can get this early. You can find out early that um, you better do something about it, that you have enough. Uh, so to be gravely affected, yeah, you don't have to drink a long time or take some of the quantities that some of us had. <laughs> um, and most of us have gone on drinking beyond the years. <laughs> I mean... We wouldn't be here if we hadn't drank for too long. Um, so the question um, on, on 34, the question is, is how to stop altogether. And this is why we're still on step one, because it, in step one, the, what they're hammering home is our, our powerlessness. Um, and here they're offering, offering another, um, you know, may, maybe a person can stop on, on a basis other than a spiritual basis. Um, I haven't seen it yet in my experience. Um, and obviously the writers of the book didn't either. Um, 
So, um, how do we how do we uh, explain to people? Um, how do we let people think about uh, whether they're one of us or not? About whether they have this disease of uncontrolled drinking? Um, we're going to describe some, and um, th these are some of my favorites. Um, um, my first first example: a friend called Jim, uh, charming fellow. Um, told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reestablished. He began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So what I'm, 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 what I'm thinking here is that he may be accepted the first part of step one. He may be accepted he was powerless over alcohol. I don't think he got to the second half of step one, which was that his life was unmanageable. Um, so Jim goes to work on Tuesday, and, and that, that's another, um, where was he on Monday, Jim? <laughs> um, and, and he's irritated that he was a salesman for a company he once owned. Um, and then, uh, then he feels hungry. You know, I love that. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired um, that, that we all learned. Uh, uh, so hunger, that, that vague feeling that you need something inside, doesn't always have to be hunger for food, um, at least not for alcoholics. Um, and then he sits down and he orders the milk. And the reason I love this story was because for 30 years of my life, I would start at Thanksgiving, and I would start making eggnog. And I would make my eggnog with, <coughs> with a, a fifth of bourbon and, and a half a pint of rum, a big, big gabon of it, and then let it sit until it was ready to distribute at Christmas time. It was the best stuff you'd ever, ever drink. Wow. It was delicious. <laughs> so, you know, people, people think whiskey and milk sounds horrible. I think it sounds great. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, the thought it occurred to me a few times, too, that if I had my whiskey and milk, it would be fine. Because milk is good for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the experiment went so well, I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one more journey. Um, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. And this is the insanity. You know, in step two they talk about, um, um, <coughs> came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The insanity they talk about in this book over and over again is the insanity of taking a first drink. Because we know, we know we cannot take a first drink. If I take a first drink, my allergy kicks in. And that first drink is, is just the key to 10,000 more. And, and who knows, who knows if I'll ever get back to a recovery again. Um, so that's, that's, where, that's where our sanity, our need for sanity comes from. I need to have something that comes between me and the first drink. And these are the examples they're giving us for why we need this. Um, in some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, like mostly I was ticked off at someone. You know, when I went out, when I, did, when I went out on a bender, usually I just sat drunk at home. Uh, 
but even in this kind of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. So there was always for us going to be total insanity associated with taking any first drink. Um, and, and, and the only way to cure that insanity, I mean, we can't think our way out of it. We have to pick up a phone and call a friend. <laughs> we, we, have to, we have to have a power greater than ourselves that we can rely on. That power takes all kinds of forms for us as we go through this. And, um, yeah, I love this. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual that Julie's going to talk to you about now. <laughs> I'll take it away. All right. <clears throat> like I said, this whole, like, like Barbara said, this whole thing is about our powerlessness. And I have to admit, I feel like I was meant to do the second half because I laughed my ass off about the jaywalker. And that's just typically me. And that's me not drinking, too. So it is definitely a thinking thing. So I'm going to start out by reading. Yes, you all, I'm going to read. And, um, okay, so this is at the bottom, the last paragraph of page 37, um, more about alcoholism. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion. Say, for jaywalking, he gets a thrill out of skipping in front of a fast moving in front of fast moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as foolish. Okay, so I I don't know. Um, the jaywalker, of course, keeps you know gets in call. He runs in to, in front of a fire truck and then breaks his leg and it goes on and on and on. He just doesn't stop. And how I relate to that, I'm going to share a story with you. And I don't really share this with many people. But the one thing my mom said to me is that one thing you are, Julie, is you're not a quitter. <laughs> so I, I keep on going. And honestly, I would sit back and think it seemed like a good idea at the time. But because of not, you know, I mean the most irrational things, and because of not getting my powerlessness over my thinking and my drinking, I had so much shame and thought, how can I be so stupid? What was I thinking? And um, so by, by, you know, being a part of this program, it's alleviated a lot of my shame with the understanding of, of addiction. So when my mom, my dad had passed in Michigan, and I mean, everybody was, my whole family, they were sleeping with each other. It was just drama. It was just bad. So I come to the conclusion that I'm going to go to Vegas. Um, I'm going to take a trip to Vegas. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to strip because you make $40,000 a day. That's what I heard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I go, and I'm headed my merry way. Um, you know, I leave everybody, and I, I'm going to Vegas. So I get to Vegas. And I find out that you have to get a pager. You have to have like a gig. You can't just get drunk and go, you know, have fun because I was very promiscuous. So you had to get a pager. You had to have an act. You had to like find the hotel rooms where they dispatched you to. And then you had to pay up front $300 to get a license from the state of Nevada. I was like, shit, I can go get a job for all of this. You know what I mean? So, so the stripping thing went out the window. And, and I proceeded to drink and get in all kinds of trouble. And sure enough, my stepfather um, picks me up. He puts, ends up putting me in a hotel and, and, and sends a flight, sends me, you know, has them. So I'm in the Riviera. Um, before, I don't know if it's still there. It's a really old school. But I literally was on a thing where you can't drink. 
So I was in my hotel room that was paid for, but I couldn't drink, you know, so it was kind of crazy. It was totally uncomfortable because there I'm thinking, how do I explain this? Or, you know, that dream's dead. That's not going to happen. My wealthiness is down. Now I'm down to no money and no way to get alcohol because I've got all these bouncers you know, not allowing me to. So anyways, by the grace of God, so nothing really too traumatic happened. So I end up going back and I get in the back seat of his car and he's like, you know, and it's not the first time I've done stupid shit ever. So he gets in the car and I'm like the walk of shame sitting in the back and he's like, you know, he was a banker and pretty reasonable. He's like, what were you thinking? You know, how, you know, you go there, you get a one-way ticket, like, you know, get what, what were you thinking? I'm like, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like 29 years old, and he's just, you could just see him, like, I just don't get her, you know, she's just walking dangerously around the world, and I was like 29 at the time, I mean, and I still had this idea of stripping, so anyways, that's how I relate to the jaywalker, and then as, as sobriety continues, um, I find myself doing the same thing, you know, I slip once, and I keep going, and I walk into this, bang, 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 bang. I think by the grace of God, I am so alive right now um, because I don't stop. And I was intervened by this program. And when I had that spiritual awakening to understand that it was my powerlessness and there's something I can do about it, I wasn't just a bad person who wanted to strip for quick money. Um, you know, and it, it just somehow relieved me and that I'm not so stupid because who does those things? That Well, the jaywalker did. And now I have humor and... Yeah, so now I need to wrap it up, right? All right. So I go to, I can't see. The last, right here. Okay. There's Fred, right? Yeah, there, do you want me to do the story of Fred? Yeah. The, the salesman. Okay, so we will do Fred now, the salesman. And even though he was successful, and that was another thing, is I grew up in an era where everybody drank, um, you know, you know, at home every night there was there was martinis, so it was a part of a lifestyle, which thank God isn't really so, isn't so happening right now. Um, so, you know, despite being really good in school, well, not so good in school, but really successful as far as popular and a lot of activities, you know, a good family, just kind of having everything going for me, I still needed, I, and I, I hope I'm relating this correctly. I still, the insecurities in my success, regardless of, of anything, and, and actually knowing better, I did have the, I didn't have the concept of the 12 steps, but I knew about alcohol, alcoholism, and I did not want to be an alcoholic, but regardless of all of that, I started drinking, and it took over, and I hope that relates to Fred's story. Right, and the <clears throat> important thing about Fred's story is that um, we read about Jim, and we read about the... Uh, the retired dude, and we read about the um, <coughs> jaywalker, um, and and most of those guys um, had had reasons to to drink or reasons to jump in front of. I mean, you know, they had had an overriding compulsion to yeah. do it. Um, and and Jim, of course, you know, um, had all these problems with with working for a place that he once owned. Um, now Fred's an accountant, and he doesn't have any problems. In fact, when AA first approaches Fred. He's like, well, you guys, you guys have settled your, your, I'm glad you guys have settled your drinking problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, mine is different. My drinking problem is different, and I can control it, right? 
And and so uh, Fred controls it for a long time. He doesn't doesn't even think about drinking. And and then he goes to then he goes to Washington and he pulls off this big accounting deal. And um, um, uh, he has this one night where he's been successful. Everybody's happy with Fred. Not a cloud on the horizon. I love that one. Not a cloud on the horizon. No problems ahead. And um, boom, it seems like a good time for a drink. <laughs> so he's off to the races again. And I, I love it. what I love about his story. Is he the one he's uh, he, he's the one who, uh, who who got on a plane and uh, and was yeah. a taxi cab driver for a couple of days <laughs> <laughs> until, until the money ran, ran out. So. Um, uh, yeah, and and uh, uh, so then then Fred was ready. Then then Fred finally realized that he had a problem, and um, so when the AA dudes came and outlined the spiritual answer and the program of action, which that first hundred had followed successfully, um, he decided to give it a try. Yeah, do you want to wrap that up then? Yeah. Do you want, so do you want me to read or to try to wrap it up myself? Okay. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up myself. Um, sorry about the Fred story, but that's why I have Barb here. Um, the whole thing that I have gained from this, and I've read it many times, and I, I just want to make sure to express this and, you know, take it or leave it, is that once I had that spiritual experience and once I learned about my powerless of alcoholism, it answered why I did so many stupid things. It wasn't, you know, a, you know I wasn't a bad person. I wasn't, you know, all of these things, and, and I definitely wasn't stupid. So now I have a choice, and for some reason, once that was lifted, I felt lovable. I felt like I could listen, and I understand it. I understood my powerlessness, and there was a solution. So I am so grateful for this program. I am so grateful for Barb keeping me online, and um, I'm so grateful for all of you. Uh, right, and, and I think, as, as Julie said, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. And... Um, the only way we get that defense is from a higher power. And um, so stay tuned till next week when we will talk about thank you all for being here and for listening. <clears throat> Blind Dave A. from Austin, Texas, speaking about Step 1, 2, and 3 at the Brussels Riverside Conference on Lake Whitney in 2008 in Texas. Let's pray. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, <clears throat> the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Thank you for coming on today. <laughs> so, uh, Blind Dave, you'll, you'll very seldom ever hear Blind Dave that you don't hear Blind Dave and Norma. We just, we're just joined at the hip. Norma, would, would you stand up or something? Where are you? Yeah. So if you ever get a chance to hear her, you don't want to miss that either. And uh, so today I'm packing up, you know, putting stuff in the saddlebags. It's, the weather's beautiful. Going to ride the bike, you know. And uh, I got all my bike stuff in the saddlebags and traveling light, you know. And nothing else is going to fit. And I get a call from Charlie who says, uh, Dave, Al says uh, a, a, a little uh, jacket would probably be a good idea. And I said, well, I got on my Harley jacket and... Is that a good idea? And he said, I don't know, Dave. And anyway, he, he comes up with this jacket. And so he calls me back, tells me he's got a jacket I can wear. And I said, okay, okay. So um, he said, it'll probably look real good with blue jeans. And I said, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs>
this is a little bit out of my league, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, so I get here and Charlie takes me in the other room and he's putting the jacket on me and 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 my, you know, I've got this thing and my wife says, "Good, that'll hide your wife beater shirt." <laughs> And uh, so then I go in the restroom, and, and, and then Charlie says, oh, I said, man, Char Charlie says, you look really good, David, in that jacket. And I said, you know, don't feel too bad, Charlie. I might have to get one of these, you know, go over to Goodwill and get one or something. And uh, he says, oh, just a minute here. You've got something. And, he's... And, then he, uh, and then he turns me around. He says, uh, he gets a wet paper towel, and he says, you got a little spot right here. And, and, and here, let me get this. And I said, good grief, now I know why I don't have one. <laughs> So I hope we can get through this. You know, Charlie was talking about him and Katie and being engaged, and they've been together about five years. And I, I went to hear Katie speak. First time I ever heard Katie, and she was up, and she was talking about Lala and telling her story, and she came to meet Charlie in this story. And she said they got to, you know, uh, they reached the point in their relationship where they finally uh, fell in the hay. And she said, and then uh, one thing led to another. And I didn't hear any more of her story. Uh, I just, the rest of the night, my head was running all the scenarios of one thing leading to another. <laughs> so anyway, I'd like to hear your story sometime, Katie. <laughs> Very good. We're going to do steps one, two, and three tonight. So let's take just a little moment of silence because I need it if y'all don't. I, I hope I don't bite that or something. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Very good. So um, we're just going to zip through this real quick because you don't do steps one, two, and three uh, very thorough, and they're steps that need to be done thorough. Uh, so tonight we're going to be zipping through them pretty good to try to get it in this little short spot. You know, when they told me I was going to be doing a workshop, I thought this was going to be like at the man-to-man, uh, -man, you know, where I'm sitting in a room uh, in a chair with a few people sitting around me. <laughs> so I wasn't quite expecting this. But here we go. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And um, so uh, when, when I start out with guys doing step one, I tell them this. It tells me not to declare anyone an alcoholic. I've got to let them draw their own conclusion. That's in the chapter, Working with Others. What it tells me to do uh, on page 92 is to uh, speak of alcoholism as an illness and of body and mind which accompany it. So my job then is to present a model of alcoholism and let them see if they fit it. So uh, I went through the book and came up with the conditions of body and mind, which accompany alcoholism, kind of looking at the, um, the, the, the characteristics of the illness. And I've came up with four common characteristics that I like to spotlight, and we're going to call them A, B, C, and D. So A, we're going to look at the physical addiction. There is a physical component to addiction, to alcohol, and we're going to start with the doctor's opinion. In the fourth edition, that would be XXVIII. I don't guess you all are flipping to that, are you? <laughs> okay, uh, it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago, this is Dr. Silkworth, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. 
These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So we're talking about the, um, the allergy concept when we're looking at the physical aspect of uh, alcoholism. And that was a strange idea when I first came into AA. You know, I'm, I'm what they call a hypoallergenic person. I, I, I don't recall I've ever had a rash to anything. I grew up playing in the woods. I've, I've never had poison ivy. I, you know, I just don't get things like that. I've never broke out because of some kind of soap. Or, uh, and, and every time I ever go to the doctor's office and they give you these papers to fill out and they ask you, do you have you ever had, do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? You know, they ask you all them questions. And then they always say, are you allergic to any medications? And I've always said, no. I've never had an allergic reaction to anything. Boy, my wife had an allergic reaction to some perfume I gave her for Christmas here before last. And uh, she put that stuff on. And by the time we got her to the hospital, her feet were swollen. She couldn't get her shoes on. And, you know, we took her in the emergency room. They put it on uh, New Year's Eve night, right after midnight, and the emergency room was full. They pushed everybody out of the way and took her straight in. They take that anaphylactic reaction serious. And uh, so, you know, uh, I am not one of them kind of people. And so when I came into AA and they said, well, you see, Dave, you have an allergy to alcohol. And I thought, no, I don't. I don't I'm not allergic to any medications. Or, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. But uh, if you've had a problem with that, all we're talking about here is the phenomenon of craving. That's all. Dr. Silkworth wasn't sure what category to put that in, but he decided to put it in the category of being an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to these allergic types. And that's all we mean by the allergy. Is that For some reason, when I take uh, the drink of alcohol, there's a few drugs that do the same thing to me. I, I, I kind of get an itch for some more. And uh, so that's all we mean by that. So moving on from that, it says on page 22, paragraph 4, it says, We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other people. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. These observations would be academic and pointless. If our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic center is in his mind rather than in his body. So I don't spend a whole lot of time talking to people about the allergy because it's the lesser of the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic center is in his mind. If the allergy was all there was to alcoholism, all you got to do is, uh, is get it out of my system. See, you know, people come into the treatment centers, they say, with their ass on fire. Actually, their whole world is on fire. And uh, some of them need some medical assistance to get through that detox process. I mean, you know, they could have a seizure or, or some serious reactions um, to detoxing, so some of them need medical assistance. It takes about a week to get them through the detox process. And if that's all there was to alcoholism was the physical allergy, then it would be over. You know, you pull them out of the fire, you put the fire out, and, you know, give them a few meals and a few good nights sleep, and you say, now, now, don't do that again. <laughs> and just like they do, they say, don't worry, I won't. <laughs> but you open the door and let them go, and they walk right out and jump back in the fire. And we have astonished society for centuries. Why? When they put the fire out and, and get us recuperated a little bit and back on our feet, we walk out and we have to and go jump back in the fire. 
Why? The main problem of the alcoholic is in his mind. So we're going to look at the mental obsession. This is B, the mental obsession, and it's on page 30, uh, starting at the beginning there. Most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. So we're talking about a mental obsession that hangs on to us long after the physical allergy. But now, apart from the physical allergy, the mental obsession is not near so strong. In fact, it's just that little thing that taps me on the shoulder frequently and says, you know, your old lady's going to be out of town all weekend. You know, that, that it, it just, it's just always there to tap me on the shoulder. It's kind of funny. I was in a restaurant yesterday with a couple of buddies that I hadn't seen in a while, and we're sitting at this table talking uh, all kind of AA this and talking about recovery, and there's a couple of ladies a couple of tables over from me, chatter, 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 and I'm trying to block them out, you know, because I'm trying to stay focused on this conversation. And all of a sudden, out of all that chatter, I thought I heard the word opium. And all of a sudden... <laughs> And now I'm trying to get these guys, shh, 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 you know. <laughs> just, you just taps you on the shoulder right in the, right in the middle of a crowd, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and that persists for a long time. But, you know, all by itself, that's all it is, is a tap on the shoulder, a tap on the shoulder. I will say this about the mental obsession is that it is persistent. And, um, but now once... I finally yield to that and pick up the drink and put it in my system. Once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense. You see, when I get the allergy in there with the obsession, I create a cycle or a loop. It's just like a feedback loop. If I got this microphone right here and went over and got too close to the PA speaker, what would happen? Yeah, and feedback. You know, we'd get a squeal, and it's a, it's a feedback loop, and the, the sound going in this microphone would come out that speaker and go back in the microphone and create a loop, and that loop is self-sustaining. It's not going to stop. Sometimes it even grows louder. And, uh, you know, and, and somebody's got to break the loop. You've either got to get me away from the microphone or shut off the PA to, to stop this cycle once it's in motion and once i take any alcohol whatever into my system and uh, and now it's like that little whispering voice that keeps tapping me on the shoulder now it's got a microphone and a pa and, you know and it's not just whispering about a drink it's demanding another drink loud and clear and i've created a loop and uh and i've got the cycle turning and uh you know through the years it gets harder and harder for me to break out of that cycle in the beginning, it just took a hard weekend, you know, and, uh, and, and a bad hangover and, and uh, you know, but before long, it started spilling into the week and then into the next weekend. And many of us, people like Charlie over there, <laughs> loved your story, Charlie. <laughs> uh, you know, before long, uh, I've got to run out of money. And then you've got to run out of money. <laughs> and then you've got to run out of things that was left laying around. 
And then the police have to start stepping in. And then the hospitals have to start stepping in. To, um, before the loop is broken. Both of these, the allergy and the obsession, are progressive features of the illness. It gets easier to fall into the cycle and harder to break out of it over the years. Uh, we're going to talk about the progressive feature of the illness just a little bit. Because, um, you know, I, when I talk to high-bottom drunks and I mention allergy, sometimes that's a foreign concept to people and they don't really identify with that. And when I talk about a mental, you've got this mental obsession, it's going to drive you right through the gates of insanity or death. Well, some of these high-bottom drunks, I go, I don't feel so close to insanity or death. They don't really connect with that either sometimes. So here's where I'm hopefully going to get the high-bottom drunks to connect uh, and to identify with it, you see. Because in describing progression, I'll say all of us, we probably had our first drink back in high school, somewhere like Charlie says, hey, these days it's elementary school. But for most of us, it was probably back in high school that we had our first, you know, really good weekend of uh, pulling a drunk. And... Uh, Back then, it was it was whenever we'd get a chance, and uh, and it was just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All right. We were having a good time. And uh, if my drinking increased, it was probably circumstantial. We're talking. Let's talk here about the normal social drinker, because he at this point he's just like us. In high school, we were mingling with that crowd and just like them. But we graduated from high school. Uh, we went off to college, maybe. And, and we got into the college scene, we got away from mom and dad, and we were drinking more. And the parties got bigger and better. And so even the normal social drinker went through a spell there where he was drinking, just, you know, his, his drinking increased also. But now here's where we part, see. At some point in the normal drinker's life, usually about his mid-twenties, he's going to wake up one morning. Because he's graduated from college, he's got his career going, he's got married, maybe got his first kid. And uh, he wakes up some morning and he thinks, man, this foolishness is going to cost me my career. It's going to cost me my wife. I better cut back a little bit. So he figures out what he can drink. And everybody be okay with that. And he promises his wife. And he draws a line in the sand. And he says, I will drink up to this line and stop. And that's what he does. He drinks up to that line and stops. He may come uh, vacation or Super Bowl Sunday or some special occasion. He'll, um, he'll have an extra drink or two. The big book says he wakes up Monday morning, shakes it off and goes back to work. I wake up Monday morning thinking of next Friday or looking for another drink. See, I don't shake it off as easy as him. But now I, I'm just like him in the sense that um, got out of college, started my career, got married for the first time. And, um, <laughs> and you know, somewhere about the mid-20s, for me it was 24 years old, when I thought, man, i gotta, I got to do something about this. It's going to cost me my, my career. It's going to cost me my, my marriage. And, and uh, so I did the same thing. I um, figured out what would be a safe amount to drink and party, and, and I drew that line in the sand just like him. I said, I'll, I'll drink up to this line and stop. And from that day, the battle has been on. I didn't know I had a problem until then. 
then I tried to not want to admit to myself that I had a problem. For him, he drew a line in the sand. That was the end of the matter. For me, I drew a line in the sand, and that was the beginning of the matter. The big book says that our life becomes characterized from that point on. Our life becomes characterized by countless vain attempts to try to be like him. I was working with a guy one time. I talked about the allergy. He didn't quite relate. I talked about the obsession, insanity, and death, and he wasn't quite identifying with that. And he said, Dave, this is why I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. I said, why? He said, well, because all my life, every time I've needed to cut back, I've been able to do so. I said, really? Every time? He said, every time. I said, well, the question is this. How many times have you had to make that decision? He said, oh, over a hundred, I'm sure. <laughs> and then he almost fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> he said, I see what you mean. It, all of us felt at times that we were regaining control. But these intervals were usually brief and then inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness over any considerable period. It gets worse. It's never better. It don't stop. Just brief pauses sometimes is the best we can do. You know, I, I like to, when I talk about uh, the progressive feature of this illness, I, I say progression is a constant force pushing me toward a drink. Pro, uh, this constant force is like gravity. Gravity is a constant force. See, if I, if I park my car on a hill and pull, you know, uh, and I get out and I'm walking away and it slips out of gear and it's starting to roll down the mountain and someone says, Dave, your car's rolling, you know. This is just an analogy, y'all. <laughs> so I run, you know, I run down and I catch up to that car and I grab it by the bumper and I, you know, and I, and I strain myself with everything I've got and I manage to stop the car from rolling. Is the crisis over? No, I've just changed the nature of the crisis. The crisis was my car is loose and rolling down the mountain. Now the crisis is I'm trying to hold the car from rolling. All I've done is switch the problem from an external crisis to an internal crisis. The first time, and this is when I really connected in, the, in rooms of recovery, the first time I heard somebody say, if you're thinking about drinking, or if you're thinking about not drinking, either way you're thinking about drinking. Oh, I got it. Oh, I got it. Whether the car is rolling or whether I'm holding the car from rolling, there's still a crisis here. There's a constant force. And I can tell you that if I'm holding that car from rolling, somebody better come along pretty soon and say, Dave, let me hop in here and pull the brake for you. <clears throat> Thank you. If someone don't get in that car and pull the brake, I can tell you that gravity is going to win this one. I don't know when, but I can promise you it's going to win. And you may be a little bit bigger guy than me, and you may say, oh, I can hold my car. I mean, I can grab it here, and I can hold it. And I say, well, if you don't let me get in there and pull the brake for you, you may hold the car a little longer than me, but I can still promise you that gravity is going to win. 
And uh, I, I can become just as miserable not drinking as drinking. I tell them at the treatment center, I say, people used to say, don't go over to Dave's house, he's drinking. Then they'd say, don't go over to Dave's house, he's not drinking. <laughs> I went through my two divorces in and when I was trying to not drink. So we got this analogy about gravity and the car parked on a hill, and that's just the way it is. Now, here's the, so, you know, you, you're holding the car. You say, well, I'm just going to let it go. Well, now here's alcoholism. You're chained to the bumper of the car. And if you do, if your foot slips or you let go of it, it's going to take you down the mountain with it. It's going to cost you your job. It's going to cost you your marriage. It's going to cost you a lot of things. It's going to peel the hide off of you as it drags you with it. The big book says alcoholism annihilates everything worthwhile in life and engulfs all whose lives touch yours. Before long, you'll be dragging all them with you. Really glad you Al-Anons are here. It takes something like Al-Anon to teach y'all how to let go. What a painful thing to have to do without support. So, uh, that's progression. And hopefully you can see it at the, at the, at the early stages. Does the, is there seeming to be a force trying to, whether you're drinking or whether you're not drinking? Either way, you're thinking about drinking. Why should my life be so consumed? Why should so much of my energy go to this problem of whether I'm drinking or whether I'm not drinking? I've never been able to direct my energy and, you know, and, and experience my full potential, <laughs> as Charlie said, because this took up all my time, all my energy, whether I'm drinking or whether I'm not drinking. And it annihilates everything worthwhile in life. And over any considerable period, it gets worse and never better. So with all of that, you know, a person say, my God. Well, thanks for the warning. I'm just going to double up my effort and make sure I don't ever pick up the first drink and set the terrible cycle in motion. Well, you know, it doesn't matter how much I warn you about the woes of alcoholism. I can also prophesy to you, just like they did to Fred in chapter 3, that you will not be able to. Not. So we're going to look at feature D. This is the mental blank spot. And looking on page 24, paragraph 2, it says, The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. Notice it did not say at all times. It said at certain times. Most times, when I'm really determined, I can refuse a drink. What I'm powerless over is when the time is and when the time isn't that I get to choose that. So we're going to look at um, page 36, paragraph 1. This is Jim. Jim was a car salesman, had a couple of months sobriety, but failed to enlarge upon his program. And he decided to drive out to the edge of town one day where he thought he'd find someone interested in buying a car. And he stopped at a restaurant to have a sandwich and a glass of milk. Y'all know the story. And... Uh, he says, I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I decided, he said, I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, 
the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in this milk, it wouldn't bother me since I had a full stomach. He said, I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. Now, see, now the allergy. He said, and the experiment went so well <laughs> that I ordered some more milk and another whiskey and poured it into more milk. And that didn't seem to bother me. So I tried another. <laughs> Thus started one more journey back to the asylum for Jim. And, uh, okay, then on page uh, 37, paragraph 2, going on there, it says, We have sometimes reflected on the consequences more than Jim did, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that paralleled our sound reasoning. There inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. So, you see, uh, when I was going through this thing looking for the, uh, the features, uh, the conditions of body and mind, you know, that accompany alcoholism, I, I said, okay, there's an obsession and there's an allergy. So when I read stuff about the physical part, I put it over here in the category with the allergy. When I read stuff about the mental part, I put it over here under the category of the mental obsession. And then one day I'm reading along here about this mental blank spot, and I'll start to put this in the category with the mental obsession. And I said, wait a minute. He's not talking about the mental obsession. He's talking about something else. There are two aspects to the mental component of this illness. The mental obsession and the mental blank spot. And the blank spot, uh, the, the sound reasoning, he's the, uh, there's the mental obsession and my sound reasoning or my willpower. And the blank spot doesn't occur in my obsessive thinking. It occurs in my sound reasoning thinking. And uh, so the obsession, you know, it's, it's thought, counterthought, thought, counterthought, going on all the time. Have a drink. No, have a drink. No, I promised. Have a drink. No, the judge said, have a drink. You know, and, and so, you know, this is going on. And if I'm an alcoholic, I do not know that there is a hole in my sound reasoning paddle. And you know what? I may play ping pong just fine for quite a while with that rim of the paddle. In fact, you know, I'm, I, I make this feel like the ping pong champ. I say, man, I got this in the bag. And all of a sudden, whoosh, it goes right through the hole. And I could swear I was on that ball. The big book says we find ourselves pounding the bar, saying, how did I get started again? And if I don't go out deliberately to get drunk because the old lady made me mad or something, if, then the blank spot will get me. Someday. Guaranteed. So, now we're going to look at Fred. Page 39, paragraph, uh, uh, paragraph 2, and the last part of that paragraph. Uh, Fred, he says, uh, Fred was an accountant, y'all know, and uh, says, we first saw Fred in a hospital about a year ago where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this, of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Um, <coughs> Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he'd come to the hospital to uh, rest his nerves. <laughs> the, do that, the doctor intimated it, it might be, uh, he might be worse than he thought. For a while, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind not to drink anymore. It never occurred to him he may not be able to do so in spite of his character and standing. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. See, they told him the a, they told him the A, B, C, and D of alcoholism. He says he was interested and agreed he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long ways from admitting it. When they got to this part about the mental blank spot that guaranteed his failure, he didn't believe that. 
picking up right page 40, paragraph 2. Now Fred speaking. I was much impressed with what you fellas said about alcoholism, and I simply did not think it would be possible for me to drink again, especially after what y'all told me. See, they, should, they scared him with A, B, and C. He said, I, I, I reason I was not as bad as you guys, and I'd been successful in licking all my other problems, and I'd be successful where you guys failed. Uh, you know, I, I, I figured I had every reason uh, to be confident. It was only be a matter of uh, exercising my willpower, keeping on guard. In that frame of mind, I left the hospital, and for a time, all went well. So, uh, in that what frame of mind? I'm going to exercise my willpower and keep on guard. I'm not going to go to sleep at the wheel. And, uh, and he said, for a time, all went well. That means that uh, he was having no trouble refusing the thoughts of a drink. It also means that they were tapping him on the shoulder. But he was not having any trouble refusing it. He was slapping him thoughts away and, and doing so fine with that rim of a paddle that he said, I began to think I was making a big deal out of nothing. One day I went to Washington uh, to, on some government business, and he said uh, it was a successful day. I was pleased. and knew my partners would be, too. The end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the rise, and I went back to the hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner as I crossed the threshold of the dining room. Now, that has been happening to him ever since he left the hospital. Tap on the shoulder, tap on the shoulder. He's had no trouble slapping it away. On this day, he crossed the threshold of the dining room, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, a cocktail would be nice before dinner. So I sat down and ordered one. Oh, by the way, Jim said when he poured that whiskey in the milk, he said, I had a vague sense I was not being any too smart. <laughs> you see, we were unable to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. Uh, Jim had a vague something. He just couldn't quite recall what it was. Fred didn't even have that. He was totally blank. They tapped him on the shoulder and said, order a cocktail with dinner. So he sat down and ordered one, just like that. Then he said, then I ordered another one. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, uh, it struck me that a highball would be nice before dinner. <laughs> Notice it tapped him on the shoulder when he crossed the threshold of the dining room. But once he's had a couple of drinks, now it goes, get me another one. It struck him then, see. Once you set the terrible cycle in motion, it don't talk nice anymore. Get me another drink. Knock him out of the way. It struck me a highball would be nice before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I, had, I remember having a few more that night and plenty next morning and a hazy recollection of getting on an airplane back to New York and, uh, and meeting a friendly taxi cab driver that I thought was my wife who escorted me around for a few days. I'd like to hear that fist step. As soon as I gave my, he ended up back in the hospital. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went over that day in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatever against the first drink. I remembered what them alcoholic people told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. See, it's at certain times that my best effort was just misfire. And he said, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned about alcoholism in the ABC did not occur to me at all. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. 
I'd never understood men who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I understood then. It was a crushing blow. The idea that we will ever be normal has to be smashed. In D here, the mental blank spot is the crushing blow. Your best effort, and even when you're doing great for weeks or months, sometimes even years, I can promise you, I can prophesy to you that you've got an appointment with a mental blank spot. And once you pick up that drink, the nightmare starts over. And what I learned today is that I, I'm not powerless over every drink. What I'm really powerless over is my alcoholic mind. And I don't know when that day is going to be. Once more, the, alcohol, the last of that chapter says, Once more, the alcoholic has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human power can provide such a defense Except in a few rare cases, at certain times. See, I don't know when that's going to show up. So even if willpower, I can do pretty good 364 days out of the year, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And uh, uh, his defense must come from a higher power. Brings us to step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, so uh, we're going to be looking here at the chapter we agnostics. Now, even when I have people that say, well, I believe in God. You know, I'm not having a problem with that. I said, you're going to go through this with me anyway. Because I find out that people who have prior religious convictions have God in a box and are just as rigid and fixed about what they believe is about God as the atheist and the agnostic. They're just as fixed on what they believe about God. And for an alcoholic, we can't have God in a box. Uh, so I take them through this work just as much. Uh, page 55, paragraph 2, uh, it, it says that, uh, For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Now, the big book says it's down there. So I tell them, I say, uh, this is not a question of faith. You have the faith. You, I, According to this book, I believe that you know there's a God. You just don't want to admit it. I don't think so. Well, let's look a little further. <laughs> Uh, see, it's a question of willingness, not faith. Page 46, paragraph 1. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as, uh, as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. So it's the willingness thing. That's the problem. Because I think that deep down, if I will get in touch with that deep down, I know there's a higher power. So I would tell these uh, atheists and these agnostics this. I said, suppose, you know, we've got deer season fixing to open here. I say, suppose I'm going out in the woods deer hunting with a friend and, um, and we're in this cabin. We've got our guns broke apart. We're cleaning them up. We're, we're going to get up early in the morning and go out and get in the deer blind, you know. And uh, this is another analogy. <laughs> So 
So I'm talking to this dude a little bit about God, you know, and he's, and he's an atheist or an agnostic. He's going, ah, I don't know if I believe in God. Nah, I don't know if I buy into that, you know. And so uh, we're fixing to blow out the little kerosene lamp and hit the rack because we've got to get up early. And I said, well, I say, listen, suppose there is a God outside this cabin who would like to come in here tonight while we're asleep and leave some evidence just for you so you'll know. Maybe some cookie crumbs or some footprints or something. And this atheist, this agnostic would say, well, I don't really think I believe in all that. Just in case, I'm going to lock the door. (laughs) Now I could have another atheist or agnostic would say, well, I'm really not sure I believe all that. But just in case, I'll leave the door unlocked. Both of them profess to be atheist, agnostic, but their attitude is 100 degrees apart when it comes to willingness. And all I need in this program is to be willing to unlock the door. Page 46, paragraph 2. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with Him. Uh, As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took the rest of the steps. Now, notice this. So I always ask the uh, the atheist or the agnostic, I say, listen, can you prove to me there is no God? I can assure you he's going to try. He's going to tell me about Darwin's theory of, of, uh, of, uh, of evolution and the survival of the fittest and the fossil record. And, uh, and, and, it's, you know, and, and I'm going to stick, just stick with my original question and say, yeah, but can you prove to me there's no God? Because those arguments don't prove. So at best, he'll have to throw up his hands and just say, okay, okay, I can't prove there's no God. But you can't prove to me that there is. I said, well, I'm not trying to prove to you that there is. I'm just trying to get you to admit that you can't prove that there's not. Because as soon as I've got you to admit that you can't prove that there's no God, I've got you to admit the possibility that there is one. And that's all you need to do for step two, is admit that you may be wrong. Can you admit that you might possibly, maybe just one-tenth of one-thousandth of... It doesn't matter what small percentage you're willing to admit that you may be wrong. That's all we need. Some famous person one time said that from a speck the size of a mustard seed, he could grow the whole kingdom of God. So all I'm trying to do is get that speck of possibility based on the fact that you can't prove that there is no God. So now, if you, if you didn't want to unlock the door just to see what would happen, well, I've just given you a good enough reason to unlock the door and work the rest of the steps and see what will happen. The, the 12 and 12 says, all you really need is an open mind. And I just got to get them to unlock their mind. That's all. Once unlocked by willingness... It says the door seems to open almost by itself. God will just walk right in. It's not up to me to prove God to you. 
It's up to me to help you just unlock the door and to give you enough reason to do it. And then God will walk into your life and prove himself to you. And you'll have your own personal experience with God that nobody else can tell you that he is or isn't and talk you out of. And that's the only kind that an alcoholic can get sober on. is a very deep personal experience. The big book talks about the guy out there at the end of this chapter. He said that, you know, this thunderbolt thought hit his mind, said, who are you to say there's no God? And he tumbled out of bed and felt he was in the presence of infinite power. It said, thus was our friend's cornerstone firmly fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. i got to have that. Or that mental blank spot will get me someday. Page 47, paragraph 2. We needed to ask ourselves just one simple question. Do I now believe or am I just willing to believe? Am I just willing to unlock the door based on the slight possibility that I may be wrong that there's no God? If I'm a religious person, maybe I'm slightly wrong and, and God doesn't perfectly fit into my box. Maybe I can have a new experience with God in AA that I didn't find in church. Does that possibility exist? I hope you can unlock your mind to that possibility. Am I just willing? Step three, made a decision to turn our will in life. See, it's always been about the will, the willingness. Made a decision to turn our will in life over to the care of God as we understood Him. And... Um, just what do we mean by that and just what do we do? Well, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Charlie read that earlier. And uh, the first thing we're going to have to do is redefine success because I know a lot of self-will people out there flying in Lear jets with millions and billions put away that the world calls successful. And they're living on self-will because they've left probably a few bodies along the way. Are we, what do you mean any life run on self-will can hardly be a success? Obviously, we're going to have to redefine what we mean by success, aren't we? Page 61, par uh, paragraph 1. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of life if he only manages well? That's, success is, have I quit wrestling with life to find happiness? No wonder uh, uh, in October when the stock market crashed in 1929, men were jumping from the towers of high finance. They were not successful men. They were just propped up with their wealth. So we have to redefine that. And that's the second part of step one is redefining what we mean by success. Being able to quit wrestling and struggling with life to try to have some sanity, some peace of mind. And so when we sincerely took this position, first of all, we had to quit playing God. and Next, we had to let God be the director. When we sincerely took such a position, we're on page 63, paragraph 1. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer being all-powerful. He provided what we needed. If we kept close to him and performed his work well, there is a stipulation. Bill Wilson said, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. 
this all-powerful God going to come into my life and do all kind of remarkable things, bringing all His power to bear upon my life to just, you know, to amaze me with remarkable things, if I will agree to keep close to Him and perform His work well. That's what step, step three is a decision. It's reaching a decision. Do I want to agree to those terms? Did you know on page 28 of the big book it says, All of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms. There are terms to forming a relationship with God. And I don't dictate those terms. God does. I, I've tried to dictate a few. God, get me out of this one. Y'all know those. Uh, and I will promise, you know. And, but, but God dictated these terms. God never bought any of my conditions and terms. But now He offered me a contract, a deal, whatever you want to call it. And I don't have to take it. But if I want this all-powerful being to step in and manage my life in a remarkable way, there are terms and conditions. It says on page 46 of the big book that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. Notice it did not say that God does not make too hard terms for them. It says with them. This is a union, a contractual agreement between us and our higher power that I'm going to turn over this part of my life. To, you know, this, I'm going to turn over the managing of my life to my higher power. And He's going to do that as a response to me doing this. Keeping close to Him and performing His work well. By the way, that paraphrases into stay sober and help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. How do I keep close to Him and perform His work well? Step 4 through 9 is how I get close to God. Now, 10 and 11 is how I keep close to Him. And 12 is how I perform His work well. Are you willing to live by those steps? Do you want to make this agreement with God? Do you, you know, I need to clearly understand that to have this power working in my life, it's going to work in response to me acting upon my part of the agreement. And so I have to, I have to, it says to think well before taking this step. Make sure you're ready. says the wording is quite optional so long as we express the idea of voicing it without reservation. I need to really think about this. Do I fully understand that I'm entering into a contractual agreement with my higher power? And then I... I mean, this is going to open a new door of possibilities. Now I know how to really engage the power of God. I, I never knew how. I used to sit around and pray and pray and, and why did it not work? And now I know it's, it follows very certain and specific actions. Very certain and specific actions. For me to reach out and try to help one of y'all. For me to do my inventory at night to make sure I'm maintaining a clear conscious contact with God. Why? So that He can direct me when I reach out to help some of y'all. He's really trying to get to you. And He really wants me and He really wants you to help each other. It's very important to God. In fact, He's willing to give you His best if you'll just give yourself to Him 
to let him use you. Alcoholics. There's a lot of love in that. Charlie, what, you know, you talk about that pink dress girl. That's just the love of God, brother. It's just the love of God. We feel it for each other, don't we? Established on such a footing. What footing? A clear understanding that I'm entering into a contractual agreement with my higher power. I know now how to engage the power of God. I know what to do to, to, to make the connection. To, you know, uh, 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 no matter how big of an engine you've got in your car, if you don't know how to let the clutch out and, and engage that power and transfer that power to the rear wheels, you don't go anywhere. And this contract is where I engage the power of God and transfer that power into my life. And if I don't know those terms and which specific actions to take, it's like sitting in neutral and gunning your engine and begging and crying and praying hard and going nowhere. I found the missing piece. And established on this footing, I become less and less interested in myself and my plans and designs. I'm no longer in the managing my life business. Uh, now I'm interested in seeing what I can do to help y'all, it says. Why? Because that's how I get God to act in my life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, I'm no longer wrestling to get happiness out of life. As we, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we became conscious of His presence, God gets involved with us around this. Man, every time I reach out to help one of y'all, I feel God. As we became conscious of His presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, the hereafter. Wow, what a deal. We thought well before taking this step. I, I want you all to really approach that step three and think about this contractual agreement. And do you mean it? Because God does. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor, but it's better to do it alone than with somebody who might misunderstand. What does that mean? Someone who doesn't grasp the gravity of, the, of this moment that is so precious when I say I do to God. You know, there's a place in the Bible that compares entering into a covenant agreement with God, uh, it compares it to marriage. Doing step three is supposed to be like saying I do to God and becoming married to God for a purpose to help other alcoholics. It says, um, this was only the beginning, though if honestly and humbly made, in effect, sometimes a very great one was felt at once. And I usually tell my guys, I say, here's what you're feeling right now. You're feeling a sense of anticipation like, whoa, I just entered into a contractual agreement with the creator of the universe. That if I would do a few simple things, he would bring all his power to bear upon my life to do remarkable things so that I would have a story to tell. Wow, I'm sitting here with anticipation. I, I don't really know what my future looks like. But I think it's going to be different from my past. 
you know, I'm like, they're starting to take, you know, uh, civilians up on the sh shuttle, you know. Uh, and, man, can you imagine if, if I'm sitting here strapped down in the, in the uh, Columbia, you know, uh, shuttle thing and uh, been getting ready for this. I got my suitcase packed, everything's ready. But now, all of a sudden, they got me strapped into the chair and I hear somebody on a speaker somewhere going, 10, 9, 8, oh, my God, anticipation. I don't know what's up there, but man, is the adrenaline flowing. <laughs> and that's what I should be feeling if I properly do step three. I should feel like I'm sitting onto the launch pad of I have no idea what's fixing to happen. The big book says we are rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed where the central fact of our life becomes the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. That's steps one, two, and three. Billy Ann from Atlanta, Georgia, speaking on the topic of 12 tests, 12 concepts of the Unity and Service Conference in Concord, California. I visited Concord many times, the fellowship there, established in 1957. I'm Fernando. I am in recovery, alcoholic. So thank you. Let's go ahead and pray and open this speaker meeting with a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Here's Billy. Welcome this morning's speaker, Billy N. from Buford, Georgia, with a presentation of the 12 Concepts. Good morning. Billy, I'm an alcoholic. My home group is the early morning AA literature discussion meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, 7.30 every morning if you're around. So I have a big, exciting topic this morning, um, the 12 concepts. So a couple of things I want to say. I am not some rigid person who thinks that every person in AA needs to study and know the concepts. I think they need to know they exist. I think they need to know that they're out there. And I say that because, and let's just, I have till 10 o'clock, right? Yesterday there was some, so as I travel around Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been sober in AA a little while, I've noticed a pervasive problem. I'm not some kind of conspiracy theorist of any kind, um, but you can't help 
but apply certain principles between legacies. Our big book is very clear that you can't fix something unless you know what's wrong. That is pretty much the basis of the first couple of chapters of the big book. That until you know what's wrong with you, it is very hard to fix you. One of the main points of the fourth step, based on how it's broken down in the big book, is that the individual resentments and other stuff that you list there, it's not really about those things, because there's a line that says, let's get down to causes and conditions. And so you can't help but be alive and notice certain causes and conditions and certain things that you notice in the fellowship. So for me, and this is what I want to stress forward, if there's someone here who's never been through the big book with someone who's been through the big book, then I would hope that you start to do that and find someone you're comfortable doing that with. If there is someone here who has been through the big book and has never been through the concepts, I want to throw out a big warning. If you have not been through the traditions, would someone who has been through the traditions do not go through the concepts? Some people say, you know, we get so up in arms about this AA group, that AA group, this meeting, that meeting, it's crazy, there's no solution. I could go on and on of all the things I hear. But the truth is, it is not the people in my experience who are armed with none of the facts, meaning none of the three legacies, who are causing us the most trouble in our fellowship. It is the people who are armed with the first legacy facts and stop. They have a spiritual experience as a result of the 12 steps and they're on fire. I mean, I'm sure everybody sitting in this room has stories of when they became on fire and what they were like when they were on fire and what other people had to deal with when they were on fire, right? I mean, I think everybody has those stories of, you know, what it was like when you visited other groups when you were on fire, you know? (laughs) To let them know that they had AA light, and if they'd like something a little bit more substantial, they could come to their group, right? Where they worked the program that the first hundred had out of the first 164 of the big book. I mean, I know all the catchphrases and words and go on. But that's what's causing us our trouble inside the fellowship. It's people armed with one legacy recovery who have no guidelines about what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous and more importantly, what we don't do. And people ask me, what can we do about that? There is something that all active members can do about that. There is a very important thing all active members can do. If you go to any big book retreat, any big book workshop, any fellowship of the spirit, 
Go to the original one in Colorado. Uh, go wherever you want. Any big book workshop. Pretty much one of the things, there's a lot of things I could throw up on a board and say, let's play big book weekend bingo. I'm going to list a couple of words and phrases, and we'll see how many are said that weekend, right? I'm pretty sure I could be 80% or better, right? I want the program the first hundred had. Anyone who's heard me speak before, I would be more like, well, which one of the first hundred? Are you implying that all first hundred stayed sober permanently forever? Or are you saying maybe you wanted to do a little bit more research and you want number 73? Um, but one of the things you'll always hear is that, you know, one of the great things about most big book weekends I've been to is how good they are about step 12 and working with others in that chapter and, and working with a new prospect. And the clear-cut directions about are you wasting too much time and are you depriving that from someone else who needs your help. And But one of the lines that you'll always hear at those big book workshops is you have to ask the person who has asked for your help, are you willing to go to any lengths? One of the most important questions in Alcoholics Anonymous. Are you willing to go to any lengths to keep your sobriety? And so, for me, I just have to redefine what any lengths means. But that can only be done if the person who's being asked to take someone through the big book defines for that new person what does any lengths mean. If any lengths means that as soon as you're finished with the first 164 pages and have gone through all 12 steps means that you should just immediately go on fire and do what I just described, going to the whole AA world, um, I think we have to add to the description of any lengths. That I can only agree to take someone through the big book if it includes that once we are done with that, we will go through the 12 and 12 and the 12 traditions. I will not say you have to have a service manual. I will not say you even ever have to own one or even go through the concepts. But I will say that the traditions are not optional. And I already heard someone, you know, jump to my term, but I'll steal her term. Um, I did in the first place. Um, but the term legacy skipping is an accurate description or phrase of what I'm describing. As you go around Alcoholics Anonymous assemblies and districts, I think one of the reasons we have some issues in Alcoholics Anonymous today is that I have been to many assemblies. Last time I counted over 80 of the 90-something areas at one time or another in the last almost three decades. I've been to that many assemblies. And some assemblies I've been to many more. But we seem to do a good job of talking about the concepts at assemblies and districts. But we don't seem to do a good job of talking about the traditions. And every two years, we get a new group of GSRs. And if we're lucky, some of them have 
a sponsor and have been through the big book. And maybe they're going to start learning about the concepts. Every assembly seems to have a what they call a GSR workshop or a past delegate who is off in a separate room with the new GSRs. But it always seems to be focused on the structure or the concepts. And I think one of the things we need to do at Alcoholics Anonymous is bring the traditions back to our structure, is bring the traditions back to our assemblies and our districts. Because you can't interpret the tradition, the concepts if you don't have a foundation in the traditions. It's just impossible. If a math equation is 2 plus 2 equals 4, if you remove one of the 2s, you can't get to 4. If there are 24 spiritual principles between the traditions and the steps, and then another 12 with the concepts, you can't teach someone how to get to 36 if you're skipping the middle 12. It's, it's impossible. And so I would stress here that while I am glad that this many people show up to hear about the concepts, what I would stress is if you've never been through the traditions with someone who's been through the traditions, that before you decide to become an expert on the concepts, <laughs> that you get on with the facts of the traditions. So that being said, let's talk a little bit before I get to concept one, and I only have a short amount of time to go through at a high level these concepts, but let's talk about how we got here. If you go to a big book workshop, they'll also tell you that, you know, they make 1935 to 1945 seem like Shangri-La and Alcoholics Anonymous, right? <laughs> that it was the greatest time ever and everybody stayed permanently sober and it's just not true. I can't stress enough, in my own opinion, that if you have decided when you leave here today you have never been through the traditions or the concepts that... I'm hoping that probably you have a 12 and 12. I would say that you should get Naye comes of age. And while you're going through the traditions with someone who's been through the traditions, read Naye comes of age. Because Bill describes 1935 to 1945 as the flying blind period. He does not describe it as Shangri-La. In fact, when you look up to 1946-47, you can become a member of the digital archives at the grapevine at www.aagrapevine.org. If you join the digital archives, if you put in the words traditions, the first things that will pop up will be the original 12 essays that Bill wrote about these spiritual principles. The principles to guarantee AA's future they're described as. How did Bill get there? What really happened between 1935 and 1961, let's call it? But really, what really happened in 55 becomes important. Is that Bill had a lot of things going on in his mind, in his life. He was, after Dr. Bob 
passed away. He was the end-all, be-all for all AA problems. You know, I even go to sometimes uh, trinket, drunk junk, whatever else you want to call them, areas of conferences, and you'll see people. I have a Sandy B saying uh, wristband, but you'll see a wristband that says, what would Bill do, right? I mean, I see them being sold. But that's really how it was at that time. And if you read the book, it's not an AA book, but I'm not afraid to read not AA books. Um, besides Not God, which is one of my favorites, there's also a, a book called um, The Soul of Sponsorship, I believe it's called. It's the relationship between Father Ed Dowling and Bill W., where it really goes into describing, because what we hear in AA is that Bill did this miraculous thing in 1955 and gave over control of the fellowship to the groups. But if you read the relationship between Father Dowling and Bill, you will see that Father Dowling was able to get Bill to realize that as long as he was the end-all, be-all, he would never get the freedom promised in Alcoholics Anonymous. That as long as it all rested on his shoulders, he would never be one among many. Now, Bill, probably no one lost more individual freedom in their life as a result of being an AA member than Bill. Couldn't walk away from it. Everybody knew who he was. But Father Dowling was able to convince him that he couldn't be the end-all, be-all on AA policy. So around 1945-46, Bill's getting all kinds of letters to the office. Letters that started out with, Dear Bill, everything's great at our group. Couldn't be going better. Lots of people, lots of newcomers. We're bringing meetings into the local jail and hospital detox. The only problem we have is this group across the street. You won't believe what's going on there. <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, Bill would get another letter from the group across the street. And guess what? They were on fire. They had lots of newcomers. They were bringing meetings to the county jail and to the hospital detox. And their only problem was this group across the street. They didn't understand how anyone was staying sober there. And Bill, in the 40s, realized that alcoholics don't really operate well without shoulders of a road, let's call it. That alcoholics need a shoulder. And after the shoulder, they need a little gravel. Like, the shoulder is not good enough for people like us, right? We get into the shoulder, we think they meant for us to use this shoulder. That's why they paved it. So we have gravel to wake you up that you've now left the shoulder. You're on the way to leaving the reservation, right? Bill was a master at realizing that we needed some shoulders, some guideposts. And if you read the great thing about reading A Comes of Age, 
as you're going through the traditions is that you will realize the traditions didn't materialize out of Bill's head. My favorite name of the traditions is the 12 worst mistakes of Alcoholics Anonymous between 1935 and 1945. Bill was able to take every problem and he was able to drop him in 12 buckets. Many of those mistakes, his, especially in the last two, anonymity. But many of those mistakes were his own. And so Bill decided to put pen to paper and the traditions were not eagerly adopted by the fellowship. There are records, there are letters in the archives where Bill would be invited to speak and they would add a little PS on the letter. By the way, we only want to hear your story. Don't talk about those 12 tradition things, you know? Um, but the 12 traditions get adopted. And the reason I talked about the AA Digital Archives on the Grapevine website is because I love those original 12 essays. They're almost, ex they're probably 95% of what's in the 12 and 12. But obviously by the time a book was published, it was edited a little. Those 12 essays are very raw. And there's a message weaved through those essays that I don't find as well in the 12 and 12, which is the reason for the traditions is that we are such broken people who don't operate well with other people that we need to make sure that that door is open today and tomorrow like it was when we arrived. That's what we owe the future of Alcoholics Anonymous. We owe them that door. We owe them a welcome once they come in that door. But if we keep going down the path we're on, that door is starting to close. So the traditions come into AA, and in 1950, at the first international convention in Cleveland, where Dr. Bob gave his last message, they're adopted. Go to 1955, and that's the term comes of age in St. Louis, and that's where we run into the conference charter. It's really hard to talk about the tradition, the concepts, and like I said, if you gave me six hours, I'll give you much more than you ever, and you'll be sick over what I have to say about the concepts, right? Today I'll be able to give you a few minutes on each. But you can't talk about the concepts without the charter. The charter is basically the Declaration of Independence of the groups of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't care about the politics involved, that's an outside issue. But as an example, a long time ago, there were a bunch of colonies in this country who broke off from another country. They call that a couple of things, but the three probably most important documents would be the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the U.S. Constitution. Inside Alcoholics Anonymous, up until St. Louis, a small group of people, predominantly in New York, were the end-all be-all of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was Bill and a hand-picked board of trustees. 
1955, when that conference charter was adopted, the groups took over control of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes I don't think we give that enough significant thought. It didn't say the trustees were in charge of Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't even say the General Service Conference was the end-all be-all. It said the groups. And what that charter really is, is a spiritual handshake between the groups of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Board of Trustees, the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that spiritual handshake says that while the trustees are the legal owners of Alcoholics Anonymous, the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous, AWS, the grapevine, that the groups are the spiritual owners and that the groups always supersede. Now, there's a couple of carve-outs in certain concepts and the bylaws of the General Service Board um, when you go through the concepts that you can find out, but the groups were supposed to be at the top. And when you look what happened between 55 and the early 60s, Bill decided to write the concepts. And the concepts are additional shoulders of the road, additional guideposts to make sure that as we're carrying out these services, we're doing it the way we were supposed to inside our 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that conference charter, most people don't realize. Now I realize it painfully. Um, I'm sure Paul realizes it painfully. Sometimes people would ask me, what's it like being chair of AA World Services? And I would say, well, you know that upside down triangle with the point at the bottom? It's like waking up every morning with that stuck in your head. <laughs> That's how painful some days are. That's truthfully how it is. And a lot of people don't realize the authority given to our boards and what our boards need from that authority to carry out the work every single day, 365 days a year. Even when I hear people get really upset about things at a forum, at an assembly, somewhere else. The difference between them and the people that are working at the office and the, and the people that are on the board is they just don't get to leave the forum. Tomorrow morning, I'll be on another conference call with some trustees committee and maybe our auditor and maybe at the end of the week, our legal team about God knows what problem that just came down the road. And sometimes, listen, Bill Wilson was the board's largest critic. That's a fact proven by our archives. Bill just didn't give it over <laughs> and turn his back. Bill had a lot of <laughs> discussions with the board, many of them he memorialized in writing, um, and was not afraid to speak up when he thought they were going the wrong direction. But it's important to understand that relationship where the legal and spiritual meet.
Now, I'll quickly talk about advisory actions of the conference, which are binding on the General Service Board. If two-thirds of the conference votes and it's passed by the conference, it's binding. The service manual actually says that if a majority of conference delegates votes a certain way, that it should be a strong suggestion to the General Service Board. To me, that is a problem in our structure right now. We do not, we do not give majority votes at the conference enough credit. We almost just say it failed. A majority vote at the conference should not be in a bucket of it just failed. It should be in a bucket of passed by a majority but did not reach two-thirds. The last important vote I saw about that was a floor action um, and it's not listed that way. So I'm not going to go on that tangent here but I would just say we, we have to honor the service manual. If we don't mean it, we should take it out of the book. That's always my view of guidelines. Um, when we start ignoring what's in writing, it sets a precedent. Like it becomes optional. And what I've noticed in Alcoholics Anonymous is we like the easier, softer way. So it's much easier to ignore and let people think it's optional than to go through the proper channels to change something. So Bill creates these 12 concepts for world service. The first one, the final responsibility and ultimate authority for AA World Services should always reside in the collective conscious of our whole fellowship. That's basically what the conference charter says. That at the end of the day, the AA groups. Now, I will say this. I do think as we go on in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to have to really take a look at what do we mean by the groups? Who do we serve? Do we serve the groups who have a GSR and who contribute? and are part of our structure? Or are we an office that just serves everybody who calls themselves AA and gets a group number? Because at the end of the day, it's a math problem. It comes down to economics. If only 40% of the groups are participating in contributing, but you're serving another 60%. How can you make that work? If you have a house with 10 roommates and only four pay rent, but you allow the other six to live there and you provide them services, are you ever going to be right side up when it comes to being fully self-supporting like our seventh tradition says? But for now, that's a discussion for another day. But I do want to stress that the first concept, I also want to say, I should have said this before I said this, the most least, least read page of AA literature, in my experience, of even people who read AA literature, is this page called The Introduction 
to the concepts. The introduction to the concepts, it is found directly before concept one. It is a note from Bill. It is very, very, very important. Um, there is a line in here when people say we can never change the structure. That is not true. We have three boards today. We had four boards. Most people don't know that. We had a board up in Canada for a while of a company that we owned. But today we have the General Service Board, AA World Services, and the AA Grapevine, Inc. But it says here, concern has been expressed. The portrayal of our internal structure might not later harden down into such firm tradition or gospel that necessary changes would be impossible to make. Nothing could stray further from the intent of these concepts. That is a strong statement. Nothing. The future advocates of structural change need only make out a strong case for their recommendation, a case to both the trustees and the conference. This is no more than would be required for the transaction and passage of any other important piece of AA business. Save for an exception or two, it is noteworthy that the conference charter itself can easily be amended. Bill laid it out there very clearly. So as I talk a little bit, a minute or two more about concept one, let me just say this. Here's another pattern that I have noticed in Alcoholics Anonymous. The General Service Board gets accused of it all the time. We don't allow things on the agenda at the conference. But I go to assemblies, and I am amazed that now assemblies, a lot of areas, have steering committees or officer meetings where things need to go through them to get on the floor of an assembly. And what I have noticed in Alcoholics Anonymous is we've kind of veered away from the groups being in charge. If a GSR has something that their group feels is important for the area, they should be able to put it on the floor at their area. If it fails, it fails. But what I've noticed is we've kind of stolen the Congress model, where it's not about the vote, it's about getting it to the floor. And we've created all this bureaucracy about how to get something to the floor. And that was never the intent. Read anything in AA Comes of Age, anything that Bill wrote. The intent was that if a group had an issue, they should be able to be heard and get a fair hearing. And so I just throw that out about concept one, but I want to read it again. The final responsibility and ultimate authority for AA World Services should always reside in the collective conscience of our whole fellowship. Concept two. When in 1955 the AA groups confirmed the permanent charter for its general service conference, they thereby delegated to the conference complete I would ask you to look that word up when you're going through this book, but it is the word complete authority for the active maintenance of our world services and thereby made the conference, accepting for any change in the 12 traditions or in Article 12 of the conference charter, the actual vote and effective conscience of our whole society. I always say I sat next to somebody in Seattle, I was traveling on business in 2003, I had just rotated out as being a delegate, 
And they said to me, I can't believe they changed the big book. Now, for me, who had been in service, I couldn't believe we were still talking about it in 2000 and 2001. Seemed like the idea came in 1996 that we should have a fourth edition. And every place I went, it was all we talked about. But here was an active member who did not know. And they were very upset. Very upset that their favorite story by Dr. Paul, that the title was changed, how dare they? Very upset if you're a third edition variety uh, alcoholic like I am between 1976 and when they published that book in 2002, you grew up with a third edition big book. Um, if you went to any conference or any international conference and went to a junk, drunk junk section, there would be all these magnets about 449, 449 this, 449 that, 449 calendars, uh, refrigerator magnets, uh, wristbands, everything 449 about acceptance. Acceptance is the answer to all your problems and you'll be fine. I am so glad they changed that page, but that's just me, right? I come from a, I come from a line that believes for a person like me that page should be ripped out. Because the pages two before and the pages two after, that person describes that action is the answer. <laughs> that once you accept what an idiot you are, <laughs> we take action. Um, but this woman was upset. And I say that because when we have so many groups in AA that don't participate, you're giving up your say. You're, you're saying, I'm going to let the rest of AA decide what to do, and I'm just going to complain about it later. That's what you're effectively saying. And again, I go back. We have so many meetings that aren't groups. These kind of often not connected to the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, to their local district, their local central office, or in a group. delegated to the conference complete authority so when you're going through this someday just take out a dictionary and, and look up complete when someone says you got to look at what the principle is if it's a legal issue the trustees have to respond for sure but respond starting litigation is much different than responding to litigation I've been the chair of AWS twice, actually. I was a trustee for four years. Took that responsibility very seriously. My duty to the fellowship spiritually, my duty to the state of New York as a fiduciary of a registered nonprofit in the state of New York that the attorney general expects them to act in a certain way, like they expect every nonprofit. And I'll get to that when I mention concept six. Sometimes we think there are special rules for AA. We, we mold the spiritual and the legal together. Well, we're AA. I use the driving scenario for that. There was a time in my sobriety where I believed that if I had a good purpose to drive, like to a meeting, it should override that I don't currently have a driver's license. Right? I figured that out myself right like 
the end justifies the means and I have a good spiritual end here. But I learned in first legacy recovery that following the motor vehicle code of the state of New York is part of getting sober. So the trustees have certain things they need to do. If we get sued, there's not a choice. We have to respond. But starting litigation is a complete different matter. And that's where it says complete authority. Concept three. As a traditional means of creating and maintaining a clearly defined working relation between the groups in the conference, the AA General Service Board and its service corporations, staffs, committees, and executives, and thus ensuring their effective leadership, it is suggested that we endow each of these elements of world service with a traditional right of decision. I could talk about this for hours, but here is what I'm going to stress to the AA group body. The most important right of decision that you have as a group and as a member is who you're sending to the conference when it comes to complete authority. How important is it who you're electing to be your GSR? How important is it as who those GSRs are electing to be the delegate? Once you elect the delegate, you're locked and loaded for two years. You can tell that delegate how your area feels about something, a whole bunch of other stuff. But that delegate shows up in New York, and they have the right of decision. Much like the trustees and the directors on the corporate boards have the right of decision to carry out business during the year. But again, it should be inside parameters. I don't think sometimes that we take that right of decision serious enough when it comes to voting. Voting is your participation in the right of decision. You're deciding who should make decisions for you. And sometimes I think we let that slide a little bit. We just think about, oh my God, I can't wait. They'll probably have an awesome PowerPoint presentation of all the places they visited in New York and stepping stones and, 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 and all this stuff. When At the end of the day, that stuff is nice. But it's not what the conference is about. At the end of the day, a delegate's job is to go there, do their best, and come home and adequately report it. We vest a lot of trust with the right of decision in our trusted servants. There is something here, though. Um, that I want to read I believe that in the business world see business has become a bad word in AA when we think of business we think of all the criminal business enterprises and I'm not talking about the ones with family names I'm talking about the ones with corporate names who we see in the paper and read and watch on the news business is never supposed to be bad Business is supposed to be ethical, honest, responsible, and transparent. I'll say that again. Ethical, honest, responsible, and transparent. The end of concept three has a warning for us. The right of decision should never be made an excuse 
for failure to render proper reports of all significant actions taken. It or never be used as a reason for constantly exceeding a clearly defined authority, nor as an excuse for persistently, fail for persistently failing consul consult those who are entitled to be consulted before an important decision or action is taken. I don't have time to talk about recent decisions by the General Service Board, but it is amazing to me that one of the largest and most critical decisions made by the General Service Board in the entire history of our conference structure was made less than 20 days after last year's conference ended. The conference costs about $800,000 a year, if anyone doesn't know that. Just give or take seven or 800 all in. All your chips in the middle, travel, parking, trains, planes, food, hotel, everything. That's a lot of AA money, and I'm glad we spend it. I want those 90-something delegates to come to New York and exercise their right of decision and their right of participation. But how do you make the largest, one of the largest decisions in AA history less than 20 days after the conference ends and you never disclosed or reported to the conference that something like that was going on in the background? I have a lot of beliefs about that situation, but the one that bothers me the most is that. Even if they were right in doing it, if I'm at the conference, there's about the same amount of people in front of me as would be at the conference. It's easy to adjust the conference schedule. Painful, but easy. Because people have the right of decision to do it. Why not just get in front of the conference and say, we want to give you a heads up. This important issue has come to us in the last couple of weeks. We think we're going to have to take action. We don't know what action we're going to take, but we think we're going to. And we want you to know that. I think if that had happened, a lot of the fallout would have been much less. People might not have been happy with the decision, but they wouldn't have felt like one of the most critical, important issues in Alcoholics Anonymous was kept from what Bill called the permanent successors to the founders. Concept four, throughout our conference structure, we ought to remain, ought to maintain all responsible levels of traditional right of participation, taking care that each classification of group of our world servants shall be allowed a voting representation in responsible proportion to the responsibility that each may discharge. That's why we let staff members vote at the General Service Conference once a year. That's why directors who are not trustees get to vote. All trustees vote at the conference. There's an important note I just want to reference inside the bylaws of the General Service Conference about how important that week really is. Look at that door and pretend it's a door going into this room at the Crown Plaza in New York City. It has doors exactly like that with the same exit sign. The bylaws of the General Service Board say that every member of the conference 
will be referred to as a delegate. So what that means is when I cross that carpet in the Crown Plaza, the last General Service Conference I attended, I was a trustee, a Class B, a non-trustee, a director on the AA World Services Board, the current chair of AAWS. But when I cross that threshold, I'm a trustee delegate to the conference. There are area delegates, staff delegates, non-trustee director delegates, and trustee delegates. I might have some other duties at that conference because I'm a trustee or the, or the chair of AWS. But inside that room, I'm one among equals. That's how important the annual conference is. That's why the right of participation is so important. Throughout our world service structure, Concept 5 says a traditional right of appeal ought to prevail, thus assuring us that minority opinion will be heard and that petitions for redress or personal grievance will be carefully considered. All I'm going to stress is this. It does not say that every issue needs a minority opinion, because it doesn't. It doesn't say that every issue requires a personal grievance. I would just stress that you should read this section because they use the word grave and look up that word. When something is considered to be in grave error, you can make an appeal to the General Service Conference or the General Service Board. But if you do it every time, no one's going to take you seriously. If you are the person who's given the minority every single time, and take it from someone who's been in the minority. 80% of the time, let it go. If you want your words to be taken seriously, save them for grave matters. Save them for things that are super important. Let the other stuff go. Believe that is God talking through group conscience. AA has self-corrected itself so many times, it's the world champion of self-correcting societies, I think. Just look at the General Service Conference report of final actions and agendas, and you will see that the agenda, while it looks fresh, the topics, not so much. Uh, they've been to the conference before. Concept six. The conference recognizes that the charter and bylaws of the General Service Board are legal instruments that the trustees are thereby fully empowered to manage and conduct of all of the World Service Affairs of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is further understood that the conference charter itself is not a legal document, that it relies instead upon the force of tradition and the power of AA purse for its final effectiveness. My favorite line in all the concepts is in Concept 6. I will read it. I thought I... Did I... Of course, our objective is, only a is always a spiritual one. But this service aim can only be achieved by means of an effective business operation. I would ask you to look up the word solely. Solely is defined quite well in the dictionary. But this service aim can only be achieved by means of an effective business operation. That means that just saying you're doing God's work doesn't mean the money keeps rolling in. 
It doesn't mean if you have a good mission, preamble, whatever your God's work is. It says you have to run a responsible business first. I mean, I know the trustees get a ton of, God knows how much they take. Um, I know, I've been there. Um, The flack, the criticism. But it's time to take the mirror in some areas around the country. It's time for a lot of areas, districts, central offices, intergroups to look themselves in the mirror. Because I can tell you what I see. I see where it's readily acceptable to have a deficit budget. Where AA entities at the beginning of the year, year after year, are planning on spending more money than they take in. I see other AA budgets out there that still don't plan for income. They just list all last year's expenses and add a little money to it. That is not an effective business operation. We have a pattern of untreated alcoholism inside all of our service structures. We do. Imagine that all of you leave here and go to your various diners or Denny's or coffee shops to meet a sponsee. And the sponsee sits down and says to you, I'm in bad financial shape. I got so bad financial problems. Having heard that discussion on both sides, um, usually, about 100% of the time, for AA alcoholic members, what that means in plain English is that they spend more money every month than they make. That's usually what it means. It means that their expenses are more than their income. We would define that as untreated alcoholism. Living in the bedevilments. That's how we would define it for an individual. Why as a society do we think we should be held to a different standard? Now it's not bad that we got ourselves in that situation because we know all of us in this room have been in that situation. We know our loved ones. Everybody's been there. But when you acknowledge it, I might need five extra minutes. When you acknowledge it, when you acknowledge it, you don't, in AA, say, well, I'll keep doing the same thing. You make a plan of action and take corrective measure so that slowly you can correct that. And sometimes I hear people talk about that in areas and districts and they're like, the money will just come in. One of the downfalls of our seventh tradition, I love our traditions, but here's one of the downfalls of our seventh tradition. We only take our own money, which is, I could write a list of a thousand reasons why that's the best thing in the world. There is one reason why it bothers me a little. We're not as accountable as other nonprofits are with our money. Other nonprofits, because they take other people's money, they have to work hard every year to clearly show how much of that money is carrying out the mission and how much of that money is being used for management. 
that should be the test of every nonprofit. No one forced us to be a nonprofit. We decided to be a nonprofit. Nonprofits are held to higher standards. But there's many organizations out there that rate nonprofits that'll say, give to this nonprofit. We know that they spend most of their money on the mission, not on the bureaucracy. So I think we need to look at all AA entities and we need to take a hard look. Is that money being spent to be effectively used to carry out our mission, which is for service entities to facilitate 12-step work, to help our members carry the message? Is that where most of our money is being spent? For me, that's an effective business operation. Concept eight, the trustees of the General Service Board act in two primary capacities. With respect to the larger matters of overall policy and finance, they are the principal planners and administrators. They are their primary committees, directly manage these affairs, but with respect to our separately incorporated and constantly active services, the relation of a trustee is mainly that of a full stock ownership and of custodial oversight, which they exercise through their ability to elect all directors of their entities. I would say most new delegates that I meet don't really understand sometimes what this really says. First of all, there's no more full stock ownership of the entities. There's footnotes in the service manual that went away in the 60s. The trustees do not own AA Grapevine and AA World Services. The General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous does not own AA World Services and the AA Grapevine. Spiritually, yes. Legally, no. The 21 individual members who happen to be on the General Service Board are what's called members with a capital M under New York State law. They are the 21 members of those three corporations. That's why at the end of the General Service Conference, there's an annual meeting of the membership of the General Service Board, an annual meeting of the members of the Grapevine Board, and an annual meeting of the members of the AWS Board, because they're the only ones that can elect the directors. And a lot of people don't realize it. It says custodial oversight, which they exercise through their ability to elect all directors. That means once a year, the trustees elect those directors. Some are staff directors. Some are non-trustee directors, like I was. Some are trustee directors. There always has to be four trustee directors on each board at a minimum per the bylaws of those corporations. But the General Service Board doesn't micromanage what those corporations do. It would be impossible with 21 people to do that. The General Service Board really only meets three times a year. They meet at the conference, but that's their three working weekends are July, October, and January. And weekend, we have, we use the alcoholic term of weekend. It's like Wednesday night to Monday, right? <laughs> that's our definition of a board weekend. Um, the last time I checked, and I say this because, you know, I run into delegates, trustees, past delegates and trustees, some of them that I agree never with, ever. There's not one thing I agree with them on. But I've found that you have to, in AA, you have to give respect, even if you don't agree with people for those people who have decided to put AA 
in front of their own life. I'm not retired. The last time I counted, I burnt through like 160 vacation days for my eight years of service. That's not counting the Saturdays and Sundays. That's just the Thursdays, Fridays, regional forums. So when I run into somebody who maybe thinks differently than me, what I try to remember first in my head is how thankful I should be that they give their life to Alcoholics Anonymous because so many people do not. I would suggest reading that concept and really with a sponsor, really understanding all those paragraphs because the trustees have great authority, but every year they ask nine or ten people to run each board. Now, that does not mean that those boards do not have to act like I just read in the right of participation, I mean the right of decision. If those boards make an important decision, they have a duty to disclose it to the General Service Board of Trustees, not to just keep it at their board level. They have a duty to disclose it, especially if it's a major policy change or an action that, impl that implicates one of the warranties. They have a duty to disclose it. They're not different than a delegate or anyone else. It doesn't say there's that the right of decision doesn't apply to the AWS and Grapevine Board. And that's why I say, going back to that decision last year, even if the General Service Board didn't know about what was going on those last couple of weeks of April 2017, even if only a couple of people on AWS, I was the chair. I had no knowledge of any planned litigation. I was not involved in any meetings or conference calls about planned litigation. In fact, to me, it was a non-issue. I want that book as far away from the General Service Office as possible. I wanted it then and now. But if a couple of people on AAWS went to the 67th General Service Conference knowing that they were going to do this weeks after, that right of decision says that they should have transmitted that information to the conference. Concept nine, good service leaders together with sound and appropriate methods of choosing them are at all levels indispensable for our future functioning and safety. The primary world service leadership once exercised by the founders of AA must necessarily be assumed by the trustees of the General Service Board. We need good people. We need the best whether they're publishing experts on the grapevine, management experts on AWS, the best appointed committee members possible. I'll tell a little story, and one of the people that was in my interview room, I've never told this story while one of them was present, but one of them is. I interviewed four times to be a non-trustee director. Three times for AWS, one time for... Uh, Grapevine. The first three times I interviewed, I thought it was the best interviews of my life. I thought I smoked it. I remember walking outside 475 Riverside Drive knowing I was going to get that phone call. There is no way anyone could have done better than me. And guess what? There is no way anyone could have done worse than me. Right? I go to my last interview. It's September of 2008. 
I've just left the meeting because my company is building a large data center for a company that used to be called Lehman Brothers. A $200 million data center for a company that no longer exists. I work in the insurance side of the construction industry. My major insurance company that used to have a name that had three letters that now has a name that has three letters. In between, they changed the name, but that there was question that that insurance company was going to fail, which would mean that all my contracts at work where I promised that my insurance would have a certain AM best rating was going to go away. For the prior four weeks, I had done nothing except work around those issues. I showed up for my interview, and usually my first three interviews, it's like a personality disorder clinic. <laughs> you have five people in a room, you're on one side of the table, and they each have an AA pet peeve. You have your literature profit person, your seventh tradition person, your singleness of purpose person. Your, I mean, it's like, and you just go around the room and they fire questions at you. My last interview changed a little bit. Because a man named John S., God rest his soul, passed away. He asked a question at the beginning. And I'll never forget it. He said, have you had a chance to look at our recent financials? And is there anything on there that concerns you? And I remember thinking about answering that question. And I said, yes and yes. And he said, what concerns you? And I said, it appears to me that your pension is an out-of-control freight train. And if not corrected, the General Service Board in 30 years will be picking up the pieces because it is way past time you have a pension that is built for a time that no longer exists in the world. And for like the next 20 minutes, all we did was talk about that subject. And I remember leaving there thinking, that was the worst interview I've ever had, and there is no way I'm getting chosen. And two days later, I got a call. And I think about that and this concept because as of January 1st, 2013, all employees who joined GSO are in the new retirement program. We were able to take some money from the reserve fund and move it over to our pension fund to stabilize that a million and a half dollars um, a couple of years ago. We were able to decrease the amount of money that AWS and the Grapevine needed to spend because when you look in 2002, combined AWS and the Grapevine spent about $400,000 that they deposited a year into the pension fund. By 2009 and 10, that had grown to $1.5 million. An extra million dollars needed from AA baskets and getting worse. So I realize when I look at this, sometimes people say, I don't know why that person got selected. I don't know why that person got selected. Trust that the board knows what they need. They know their own gaps. They know what they want to do in the future. So I'll just say quickly, um, in Concepts 9, 10, uh, well, 10, 11, and 12, which I could give a four-hour workshop on, I'll close with saying this.
There are a couple of essays in those concepts that I love. The one on leadership. There are a couple of qualities that are found inside those essays. There are a couple of words that are very important. I want to say those words are vision, tolerance, flexibility, and responsibility. The concepts make clear that those four qualities are a bar for entry. If you do not have those four qualities, you will not be an effective trustee or director or appointed committee member or staff member. I heard a tape of a past trustee who I never got to meet, but he gave a simple math equation with those words that I've taken to heart. Vision plus responsibility plus flexibility equal responsibility. Lack of vision, inflexibility, non-responsibility. Uh, uh, yeah, no t intolerant, no flexibility, lack of vision equals irresponsible. That's what I would say about those things. And, and in my experience, if you're going to be an effective AA leader, you have to be flexible. You have to be tolerant. My prayer that I had to just embrace in my heart, still today, and it works in all forms of life, but AA gave it to me, is to pray to be tolerant of the intolerant. It's my hardest job in life. It's my hardest job in life, everywhere, every aspect of my life, even AA. I have to pray to be tolerant of the intolerant because I know how intolerant I could be. And do I have a right to be intolerant? Do I have a right to be not flexible? But vision? Vision is the board's number one job. The general manager and the staff run the office day to day. The board's job is to look into the future. This is A. We want to get to B. Tell the staff where B is and let them get us there. So I know I went a little over. I apologize, but this is a tough, tough assignment. Um, but I would suggest again to tell you that if you've not been through the traditions, do that before you go through the concepts. Thank you very much.